Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast for university students, recent grads, and anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about business. I'm Ben Triggs, and as always, we'll be joined by the wonderful Chris Stokes. And this month, we cover P&O and what it says about the labour market in 2022, the new tax and financial year, advertising and the great boom of influencers used by brands. And also we'll talk a little bit about flexible working. All of this and more in this episode. Welcome, Chris. And how are you doing this month? I'm very well indeed, Ben. But more importantly, how are you? Because this is a very important day and it's a a big number, I think, that we're celebrating today. Uh, we are. Thank you so much, Chris, for mentioning it so early in the episode. Um, but yes, I uh, I am turning or I have turned 30 um, today. So uh, a bit of a celebratory episode for, for myself. But for everyone else, we're going to be covering the core three stories that we always do. Um, and then a fun one to to end. Chris, what have you been up to in the uh, last few weeks? Um, bit bit better weather we've seen, which is exciting. You've got fun plans for sort of the Easter bank holiday coming up. Well, never mind that. I was going to ask you how you're going to celebrate your birthday. And happy birthday, by the way. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, I I am keeping it fairly low key tonight. I'm going to have a bit of a, a family meal and uh, just uh, just enjoy it. Tuesday night. Probably isn't the uh, the the big party night normally well i suppose if you're at university maybe maybe it is but um with work on wednesday uh not for me how about yourself chris what have you been up to lately um not a lot really i'm looking forward to uh to the stories we're going to uh cover this episode i think they'll they'll be really interesting yeah so no, we were talking beforehand i think there are a couple of really interesting ones very very different to each other as well so it's going to cover a wide spectrum of whatever you're thinking about going into or if you've started in the working world should be able to kind of boost your commercial awareness in so many different areas and get you thinking um uh, a bit differently maybe about some of the stories as well of course, as always, uh, make sure you're checking out our social media channels. We've got a LinkedIn channel. We've also got an Instagram channel, which, given we're going to be talking about influencers later, um, is a uh, is is very fitting. So do head on to there and do follow us. You get lots of stuff around the episode as well, which is really exciting. And Chris, we were talking a couple of months ago about your books. Um, is there an update of them going digital? There is. They have just gone digital. So they are available in ebook format. Uh, so thank you very much for mentioning that. Yes, absolutely. No worries at all. Um, as I say, uh, this is a this is of course a plug, but they are genuinely, genuinely the best books I've read on boosting your commercial awareness, getting you thinking about the business world you can find them on amazon you find them on uh chris you've got your own website as well that you can find best them to on. go through amazon Amazon's best to go through amazon yeah. perfect yeah. and also if uh, if you don't want the physical book which uh, maybe you do um you can now get them as uh, as ebooks as well chris are you going to be narrating over it at any point soon are we going to be turning it into an audio book I, I feel that a lot of our listeners think you might have the sort of David Attenborough style voice that would work so beautifully for uh, for an audio book. So is that is that something in the pipeline? 
Well, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I haven't thought about it, but uh, it, 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 it's a thought. But I'll have to brush up my best David Attenborough impression. Perfect. OK, well, any listeners out there that want to hear Chris, if you've got the physical book, you've got the ebook, but you want a little bit more of the audio book, uh, make sure you uh, get in touch with us. Uh, and uh, hopefully we get enough people. Um, we'll make sure we convince them to do uh, an audio book as well. Right. But for this episode, we've got three uh, stories to cover and a fourth fun one. So let's get started. So the first story that we're covering this month is all around P&O. So if you've read the news and not even the business news, to be honest with you, this has made kind of front page news, uh, front page of BBC across the last few weeks. Um, so the ferry company who let go 800 workers last month and then replaced them with cheaper agency workers um, looking to achieve a cut in cost. However, it majorly backfired against them. There was actually suggestions potentially that they'd broken the law in what they'd done. Uh, the RMT, which is the union, um, have been heavily involved in this. And uh, I think their CEO was called in front of a, a parliamentary um, committee um, as well. And you might have seen that interview over the last couple of months. Um, Chris, I want to try and get into the business side of it, but also look at the wider labour market as well. So first of all, what were P&O looking to achieve with this move? And is it just P&O at the moment doing things like this? Or are there cases which maybe aren't getting as much media attention, which are happening across the business world? Well, uh, businesses generally uh, are always looking at their costs and Employees are a substantial cost. Um, I'm just looking at law firms, the sector I know best. The biggest costs are premises and, and people. Um, so it's natural for businesses to always be looking at their cost base and seeing if they can reduce it. And uh, there's always been the threat of automation, the impact of technology going back, oh, at least 20 years. But I think what was unusual about this is that their, the employment law, not just in the UK, but internationally, employment law is really complicated. Uh, and in developed economies, it's complicated because uh, it's there to protect employees. And if an employer is planning to make a large number of employees redundant, there's a, a, an extended process of consultation that they have to go through. And what was unusual about this is that most employers go through that process. Uh, part of the benefit of the process to employees is to forewarn them that this is going to happen. And it does enable their union to step in and negotiate with the employer. Uh, PO didn't do any of that. They simply uh, announced that they were making their 800 employees redundant. And then I think what uh, surprised people was exactly, as you said, when the CEO was called before a parliamentary subcommittee and admitted that um, they hadn't followed the law, but also said that they would do exactly the same thing again, um, which just seemed reputationally not, not a terribly wise thing to say, e even if that had been their intent. So employers up and down the country do make uh, employees redundant, but by and large, they follow the process. Yeah, absolutely. It was, a, as you say, a slightly strange 
uh, sort of uh, interview that he gave to to some parliamentarians uh, about two 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 weeks ago. Is this quite a unique case to PO? Because my understanding is that um, given that their ferries go around different ports, so different jurisdictions, they can employ people at a lower rate than maybe the national living wage or the minimum wage in the UK. So the benefits that they tried to gain, i.e. having cheaper labour, wouldn't be replicated if a company was just purely based in, in the UK compared to a ferry company that, as I say, its labour is in effect on the move as the ferry kind of moves around Europe or the rest of the world. That, that's exactly right. Um, what PO argued was that the UK minimum wage didn't apply to the seafarers working on their particular uh, ferries because they go between the UK and non-UK ports, whereas UK employment law applies the minimum wage to seafarers working on ships in UK waters. Um, and that's regardless of where the ship is registered, because the other overlay of complexity is that a lot of ships are registered with what are called flags of convenience. They're registered with offshore ship registries. And that's an, uh, another argument for saying that the ships in question weren't subject to, to UK law. It, it's complicated by the fact that uh, the UK has... Uh, almost deliberately not extended the minimum wage to those seafarers working on boats that go to other countries. And you're quite right, Ben, that leaves scope for operators to hire crew at lower rates to compete internationally. And there is a suggestion that the UK government is now thinking of unilaterally extending the UK minimum wage laws to seafarers operating on international routes, not just those uh, within the UK. And I think the reason why this went down particularly badly was that um, uh, a lot of these seafarers, they live on board the boats. So when they were told without any notice that they were losing their jobs, they also effectively lost their homes. And that didn't go down well with local coastal communities where uh, the ferries go to and from. And of course, it didn't go down very well with the general public uh, who, who are users of the ferries, not least because even if they wanted to use them, the disruption meant that a lot of P&O ferries were cancelled because what ports started to do, quite rightly, was to look at the health and safety regime and say, well, you've hired agency workers who aren't familiar with these particular boats. So actually, we, the port, are not going to allow them to sail because we don't think they can sail safely. The complexity was partly around UK law. Uh, partly around where the boats are registered and partly around application of health and safety regulation. So that's what added to the overall complexity of it. Amazing. Yeah, really interesting to hear, Chris. I want to move a little bit wider now and talk about unions. So obviously the RMT have been heavily involved in this case, um, protecting the workers and trying to get a, a deal for them, compensation, or even uh, get the people's jobs back, I think, uh, was, uh, was one suggestion which has been, at the time of recording, been rejected by uh, P&O. Um, but unions have also been quite a big topic in Amazon. Um, there's been a vote uh, recently in one of the, uh, in one of the states in America around whether 
uh, whether Amazon's workers should unionize. So, Chris, what I'm really interested to know is what the role of unions is today. I think from my perspective, maybe with a history degree, look back at you know the 60s and 70s and then Thatcher in the 80s, where the unions were, let's say, more powerful than they are today. And then a lot of their power was sort of taken from them and sort of that battle between the Thatcherite government and, uh, and the big unions. But looking in today's world, what is their role and are they a good thing? Well, very interesting setting it in a historical context, as you have done, because in the past, certainly during Mrs. Thatcher's government, and as you say, the battle she had with the miners, they, they were seen as troublemakers by employers and, and they were holding on to entrenched working practices that meant that industry couldn't modernize. But what, what's happened since then is that the unions themselves have modernized and they're now modern, efficient organizations that represent their uh, respective workforces in things like health and safety, compensation for industrial injuries. And so actually, I, I myself think unions have got an incredibly important role to play. And this is in the context, if you look at uh, just stepping back from all of this, and if you look at where um, you know, the profits of business go, there is increasing polarization between what those on the shop floor earn and what CEOs earn. And it's almost disproportionate now that uh, CEOs can move into established businesses and earn tens of millions of pounds in salary, bonuses, stock options for just taking over an existing successful business. I can understand it if entrepreneurs earn a lot of money because they build a business, but it's harder to defend if it's just a CEO moving into an established business. So in a context of greater polarization of distribution of wealth, I think unions have got a really important role to play these days. And with the Amazon example that we've recently spoke about, you might have seen a vote. I think there's been two votes, one of which uh, they voted for potentially uh, setting up a union. And I think in Alabama, they voted against it, uh, the workers of Amazon. Amazon um, very clearly are adamantly against their workers unionizing. What do they think is the worry with having a unionized workforce? Well, in, interestingly, employment law in the States is completely different from uh, here in the UK or, or, or in Europe, because in the States, there's very much a hiring and firing culture. Uh, it's perfectly standard practice to fire people on the spot. They leave, they find a job elsewhere. So in a sense, unions haven't had quite the, um, quite the history in the States that they have uh, over here, except uh, through unions like the Teamsters, which, you know, their reputations were, were not completely unblemished. Whereas here in the UK, we're very much along the European, more socially based model. And for example, if you look at Germany, uh, in Germany, unions have uh, seats on the boards of public companies, which again, I think is a good thing, because it means that the workforce is represented at the highest level. Obviously, this story uh, goes back to the labour market, more broadly, the labour market. Companies like P&O looking for cheaper labour, companies like Amazon um, worried about their labour labor force uh, unionising. Um, but if we're looking at the UK specifically, the big worry or the big thing that we've been looking at is over the last year and a half, uh, we've not been in the EU. One of the worries was is that we wouldn't see enough 
both actually low skilled and high skilled uh, labor entering the UK. We currently have 1.3 million unfilled jobs in the UK. There are, of course, a, a plethora of uh, different reasons that could be. But are we seeing the impact of leaving the EU and us not at the moment finding a solution to get enough labour into the UK? I, I think we are. Uh, w- one of the problems with the current government, as commentators have said, is that because the current government was very much behind Brexit, they are unable to recognise that there are issues caused by Brexit. They're not prepared to recognise that. And the, these these issues extend to why exports from the UK to the EU have dropped, uh, why we've got so many jobs, you know, they're colloquially, they're called the wrong jobs, as it were, but so many jobs that have been uh, uh, unfulfilled. Economists will tell you that your strongest trading partner is the one that is geographically close to you. So in our case, in the UK's case, the, the EU. So undoubtedly, I think the UK has suffered on all sorts of fronts to do with trade and, and employment. Um, and one of the advantages of being in the EU was a freedom of movement of, of labour. And as we speak now, we know that uh, the French are uh, electing a new president. And one of uh, Marie Le Pen's aims is to actually take France, if she wins, out of the zone that allows for mobility of labour. Um, so I think this could be a, a big issue. So just bringing this back to P&O, what I think is really interesting at the moment is that the UK government is actually talking to other European countries to discuss and agree how uh, seafarers, maritime workers operating on routes directly between the UK and Europe can receive an acceptable minimum wage. So what I think is interesting about that is that even in a post-Brexit world, the UK needs to work with governments in countries at the other end of, of these, these shipping routes to find an effective solution to ensure that seafarers don't suffer from low pay. And I think that's a tremendously good thing. Yeah, massively uh, agree with you, Chris. Uh, my final point on sort of the labour market at the moment is uh, probably a bit of good news. There was a survey that suggested that there are a million graduate level jobs without uh, qualified staff filling them. It's a good time to be a job hunter with lots of firms investing in graduates at the moment um, and wanting them to fuel their future. So as I say, happy applying everyone. The next story that we're going to cover this month is back to tax, uh, uh, an area that we do cover a fair bit, but it is very interesting and does have a a big impact on the financial plumbing and just individuals as well as businesses. Um, So you might have noticed since we last spoke to you uh, in March, there is a new financial and a new tax year have uh, kicked off. There has been a lot of changes to personal income tax, which you've seen a lot about. We want to chat through what it actually means, these fiscal or financial years, what the tax year means, what businesses need to do um, during during this, this time. And then we'll also cover a little bit about what some of the changes have been, because typically a lot of the changes are introduced at the start of the tax year um, moving forward, what the changes have been and the impact it will have on individuals and business. 
So, Chris, what is a financial year and what is a tax year? Well, the, the two are slightly different. Um, that the tax year runs from the 6th of April to the 5th of April. You are taxed on the income that you earn in the tax year. And that's different from a financial year. So the government's own financial year runs from the 1st of April. And businesses can pick their accounting year, as it's called. They, they can choose when their accounting year runs from. So if you start a business, say, in, in, in June, you might choose for your uh, financial year to run from the 1st of June. The only exception to this is that if you're self-employed, your financial year has to be the tax year. And that's also the case if you're in a partnership. But the, the reason why this is relevant is because when you're joining a business, it's quite important to know what their financial year is. And that's because businesses divide the financial year into four. And so you'll come across terms like Q1, Q2. Q1 is the first quarter, the first three months of that business's financial year. And businesses that have that registered, which most large businesses are, they will also do quarterly VAT returns. You've got to account to uh, the revenue uh, every quarter for the VAT that you've charged on the goods that you've sold. So quarters matter, quarterly VAT returns matter. And the other uh, sector in which this is relevant is in commercial property, because in commercial property, you get what are called quarter days. And these, these can be quite bizarre. For instance, the 25th of March is one of these four quarter days. And these are the days on which commercial tenants pay quarterly rent to their landlords by and large. So the, the reason why Ben and I thought this might be interesting for you is, first of all, to understand the distinction between the tax year and the financial year, but also to begin to understand the importance of quarters uh, with, within the business world. Yeah, absolutely. And just to give kind of my personal example, like our quarters also define our personal objectives as well. So we have quarterly objectives, which run um, similar to the financial financial year. And also the second thing, as I say, I run the marketing department at Bright Network. What I do in Q4, so the last quarter of the financial year, especially probably the last two months of, of that quarter, is quite different from potentially what I'm doing for the rest of the year, because there's a lot of planning that goes in to those last couple of quarters. So I'm doing a lot more data analysis. I'm doing a lot more analysis of how the budget is effectively being used or how well the budget is being used across the financial year and put all that planning into creating a new plan. So the strategy often, not always, often the strategy will tie in with a new budget because ultimately uh, whatever your strategy is, it usually, especially in marketing, costs money. So you need to work out that you've got a strategy that can be fulfilled by the budget you've got, hence why those two things often um, sit nicely together. Maybe in a graduate role, less so, but the companies that potentially you'll work with if you're some form of consultant or even in the companies you're at, towards the end of a, a business's financial year, you might be doing slightly different tasks as you would be during the, the middle of it. And it's certainly the case that as you move up a, a, a corporate organization, you will get more and more involved in budgeting. Mm -hmm. um, and as Ben was saying, what you're thinking about is how much money we need for the next uh, financial year 
to fulfill our strategic aims. And certainly in, in governmental terms, there is an idea that you use it or lose it. So if you've got budget set aside for this year, you want to use it up because otherwise next year, the amount of money allocated to your department or, or, or to your particular function might be reduced mm -hmm. because you haven't used it all, all this year. And the way this ties back into the financial markets is that companies issue guidance to the markets on what they think their financial results will be. And what is happening increasingly is that if a, a listed company, a, a public company on, on the stock exchange, if it warns that uh, its financial expectations aren't as great as it had set out earlier in the year, its share price can be very, very badly knocked because markets do not like companies uh, failing to fulfill the, the guidance, as it's called, the guidance that they'd offered previously. Yeah, really agree. And I think I've always found the concept that if you don't spend it, you lose it to be kind of ridiculous. I obviously work in a fairly small business where that that isn't so much the much the case. But obviously, you hear about it going across government or even even big corporate organizations as as well. There's still that kind of attitude prevails. The one thing I would say, though, about um, any sort of budget that you have, especially if you're what would be defined as a, a, a cost center. So if you look at sort of marketing, for instance, um, will spend money to acquire new users or to get more business to come into the organization. And it, you might think, well, ultimately you want to hit your targets and spend as less money as possible. But coming in significantly under budget is often seen as a negative, maybe not as negative of being significantly over budget. There's a lot of projects where I've gained a lot of media traction that you would have heard that have gone miles over budget. You know, stuff like HS2 and football stadiums typically uh, uh, cap capture the news. But if you're significantly under budget, people at shareholders or executives in, in, in businesses are sitting there and going, well, what could we have achieved if we actually fully spent the money that was allocated to you. Chris, is there anything that you would say that businesses have to do around the tax year or is considered really good practice, which you feel that grads should know about? I would just echo all of the things that you said, Ben, that, that um, uh, the important thing is to be on budget. Obviously, you don't want to be over budget because then you're spending money that the business has to find from elsewhere, but you don't you don't be significantly under budget because it suggests you're not investing mm. uh, to achieve your strategic ob objectives. Chris, I wanted to talk specifically about some of the changes that have come in in the last few days at the start of this tax year, because broadly speaking, um, there's been an increase in personal tax. So the national insurance rate has increased slightly. With that, what employers contribute as well has increased slightly. So you've got an employee's and an employer's contribution to national insurance. And then something which isn't technically a tax increase, but is utilised quite often by, uh, by governments that don't want to do a specific tax increase, is actually freezing the bans of income tax. And this basically means, let's say, the, the rate of the higher, higher level of tax is set at a certain point wages typically go up each each year so if that rate stays exactly the same for five years which uh, i think is the case now it's april 2026 that they're set until it means that more people will earn enough to enter the higher band of tax 
and therefore more tax will be collected. So it doesn't technically look like an increase, but actually they take more because wages rise over time. And if the bans don't rise within the uh, same way, um, ultimately people pay more. Chris, it feels like a difficult time for a lot of people, especially with energy prices uh, going up. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty wider um, with kind of conflicts in Europe and everything uh, around that. Why do you think the Chancellor Rishi Sunak is thinking this is the time to continue with these increases in tax to raise more money? Well, I just want to echo what you were saying about freezing personal allowances and and tax bans. This is often called uh, stealth taxes or tax by stealth because uh, we're in a very inflationary period at the moment, which means that um, people's wages can, can be expected to go up, but also uh, benefits can be expected to go up. I, I, I heard a report yesterday that benefits are going up by 3%, but inflation is increasing prices by 8%, which means the, 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 the least well-off are going to be hit really, really hard. Um, so I, I, and, and what's interesting about this is that when you're on the point of, of going into the workforce, when, when you're a graduate and you're thinking of your first job, these things might appear a little bit alien, you know, this idea of personal allowances and, 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 and tax bans. The other thing might, that might seem a bit odd is that there are kind of two taxes that your income will be subject to. One is uh, personal tax, pay-as-you-earn, P-A-Y-E, which simply means that uh, your monthly paycheck is reduced by the amount of monthly tax that you have to pay. But also the other thing that Ben was talking about, national insurance, this is a separate tax and it was brought in essentially to pay for uh, uh, state pension and benefits uh, when, when you, you've retired, benefits when you're unemployed, brought in, I think, after, after the last war. And what's interesting about national insurance is that it's a rare example of what's called hypothecation. Hypothecation is where a government raises money through tax, but ring fences what it's going to be used for. So national insurance was a hypothecated tax to pay for uh, the state pension and unemployment benefits. And chancellors hate hypothecation because what they really want is one big pot into which all the money goes and out of which it, it, it can then be used, which is why you know there are things like climate change taxes, aviation taxes, insurance taxes. Uh, these actually just go into a, a, a central pot. And what's interesting about the increase in national insurance is that this government has hypothecated that increase. It has said that the reason for that increase is to pay for the NHS uh, post-pandemic and also social care. So it will be interesting to see whether it keeps to to its word. And in terms of of, uh, Rishi Sunak and and the Chancellor, what is the Chancellor trying to achieve? What he's trying to do is to balance several things. One, he's dealing with an inflationary world, which is outside his control. Two, he's dealing with the least well-off being really badly hit by this. Three, he's trying to balance the books, especially post-pandemic, when uh, the UK, along with all, all, all governments around the world, has borrowed a lot of money. So he's really caught between a rock and a hard place. Completely agree. There definitely is that trade-off of when to start 
I guess, clawing back a bit of the money that we've spent, um, which has run into the hundreds of, of billions to support businesses, individuals and the healthcare system during the pandemic, rightly so. Our third story of this month is something that you will be very, very aware of and actually possibly even on your phones, on social media platforms as you listen to this episode and possibly even looking at an ad from an influencer. So what we want to be uh, covering is the rise of brands utilizing influencers as part of their strategies to reach their customers. So I think this year is expected to be 15 billion spent on Instagram influencing alone out of kind of the marketing budgets of uh, businesses across across the UK and the world. And I think 90% of marketeers are planning to increase their influencer marketing spend this year as well. So not only is it a big thing that's come about over the last five to 10 years, it's also looking like it's going to get even bigger. So it's definitely worth talking about. But with it, and it being such a new way of reaching customers, there have been some challenges around it. First of all, taxation. Second of all, declaring the ads. You might have seen the hashtag ad uh, sign being used on, on, on posts and you'll know about it. But definitely certain celebrities, influencers have got into trouble by not declaring well enough that, uh, that they're advertising or being paid to advertise a product. Um, Chris, I guess the, the key starting point is, is I would say that you're one of the old school influencers, maybe not so much on social media, but through your sort of books, uh, there's definitely a, a rather large following uh, that you've uh, uh, developed uh, over, over, over the years, but I haven't seen you on TikTok or Snapchat yeah, so what's the thinking around your personal sort of brand there, Chris? <laughs> Lord above, I, I, yes. I, I'm of an age where the idea of having a personal brand is kind of pretty weird. Um, and uh, I, I thought you were going to say, Ben, that, Chris, you're of an age where you're not going to be able to understand any of this stuff, which is much more likely. But just, just stepping back from it, what I think is really interesting about this, um, and and you're in marketing, Ben, and I've got a marketing background. It's how, it's, it's how do you reach your, your audience? And in, in a sense, there, there is nothing new. And influencers are really the modern version of the old celebrity endorsement. Um, and, and in old movies, they would have things like product placement, where manufacturers and retailers would pay studios to put their products in, in scenes. And the only question is, why, 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 why is the rise of the influencers happening now? And in a sense, it's because of what I call the noise. Um, through the internet, we've got a kind of democratization uh, so that if you're a musician, you can record yourself in your bedroom and, and stick it up on the web. If you're a writer, you can publish your books as, as eBooks. Um, in the old days, of course, music was dominated by music labels, record labels, and you could only get your music out there if you were signed to a label that was prepared to put your music out on those old things called vinyl LPs. And with books, the old, in the old days, you could only get a book published if you could persuade a publisher to, to put your book out there. And usually you'd have an agent who would talk to the publisher to try to sell your book. So 
in a sense, those were gatekeepers. They, those were, in, in, in some respects, uh, quality controllers. They limited what got out to the market. Now, now that there are, are no gatekeepers, uh, there is so much out there that for individual consumers, it's really difficult to, to find out what there is there. And so this is why things like, you know, Amazon reviews are important and increasingly people are beginning to question, you know, uh, uh, are, are all of those reviews independent reviews with influencers? People question, are they being paid to do this? Because it is really important from the consumer's point of view to know, is this an independent uh, a view of this product or service? Or is somehow the person who's promoting it being paid to do that? And I think this is largely about the sort of industry. So the ASA, the advertising standards catching up, because when it first started happening, like there wasn't this idea that uh, that, that you need to put like or need to show that it was an ad or anything, anything like that. And all of a sudden, very quickly, the regulators got involved and go, well, hang on a second, that person is being sent this for free to start with. And then all of a sudden they're getting paid some money to 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 basically just use a product on a social media video or have photographed with something or or something like that. Do you think regulators are struggling to keep up with this sort of advertising? I, I think it's a, a really um, interesting idea, Ben, because you, you mentioned the Advertising Standards Authority. And um, certainly in the old days, the ASA was all about vetting adverts that appeared in newspapers mm -hmm. and then adverts that appeared on television. That this is, this is far more subtle and it's also far harder to regulate because in the old days, the Advertising Standards Authority could censure, say, an advertising agency or a TV channel or a newspaper. But nowadays, what they're having to deal with is... Uh, platforms and platforms are very careful about not wanting to be fixed with responsibility for content because the amount of resource they'd have to apply to vet content when actually they are technology businesses that simply in origin provided the platform that's a completely different kettle of fish so i think what we're seeing is old style regulators trying to grapple with new technology, new platforms, new channels to market. And we're right, we're, we're right in, in, in the, the, the milestone of that, seeing how they are trying to do that. Yeah, definitely. One thing they have turned to is sort of naming and shaming people that don't clearly declare um, when they're getting paid to advertise something uh, that they advertise. I think Jodie Marsh, a few of the Love Island contestants, uh, have fallen foul of that and they've they've called them out for repeating repeatedly not suggesting something as an ad when it when it clearly is but definitely the amount of advertising across these platforms is 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 so huge and the really interesting thing from a marketing perspective is that when it sort of initially started happening these not necessarily were notified as ads they looked like genuine recommendations however even nowadays where they have to be notified as ads people still trust them people are still trusting the people in in those uh, in those ads on instagram that they follow that they like maybe that they see uh, something about them that relates to to their personal life 
and still trust those kind of uh, kind of those those ads basically because ultimately maybe not so much or not even watching tv at the moment but trusting possibly the 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 people that may seem more relatable on instagram or or different channels as 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 well um one thing that came in very recently in the last few weeks is that they're clamping down on influencers especially those that can influence young people and celebrities uh, promoting certain products so they clamp down on gambling websites uh, there's been a number of different people that have promoted gambling websites i think uh, peter crouch and abby clancy for one jose Mourinho often tends to be in the sporting um arena but they're clamping down on that the government clearly feels it needs to step in at certain points whether it be over you know high sugar and salt food gambling what is the role in government in ensuring that the wrong adverts or what they deem as the wrong adverts and not being uh, promoted to a youth audience? It's a really good question because, you know, there, there are always, there, there's always the risk that government will be, will be accused of being, you know, the nanny state. But I think if you look at where government becomes most involved, it's because if it doesn't step in, there's going to be a social problem and that will have, direct cost consequences for taxpayers and so for the government. So when you think about the areas where government has stepped in, you mentioned, Ben, sugar, you know, obesity, the cost to the NHS. Going back a long way, uh, tobacco advertising, not being able to advertise uh, on the sides of Formula One cars mm. at a time in those days when actually tobacco companies were the biggest contributor to Formula One. Why? Because the, the ill health caused by smoking is a cost to the NHS. Uh, gambling, the mental health issues that result from that, you know, again, cost to, to the government. So when I look at these things, I tend to think of why is government uh, intervening and is it from a nanny state point of view, or is it because there's actually ultimately a direct cost to to uh, the public sector, to to you know to the taxpayer, to government, because these things cause problems and people then need help to rescue them from them. This influencer game is huge business, and the likes of. Cristiano Ronaldo, who's the the biggest uh, star on Instagram, gets paid up to a, a billion dollars per post for an advertising post, which is just shows how much money can be made uh, in this in this space. And also more, I guess, more out and out influencers, so people that have become famous not through football or acting. Um, so uh, a lot of people will be familiar with uh, sort of the train. Uh, enthusiast Francis uh, Bourgeois, but you'll see that he's gone to and done campaigns with Gucci. So stepping out of the Instagram world, he's actually on billboards advertising sort of clothes. Same with uh, uh, Carbe Lame uh, for Hugo Boss, uh, leading one of their, their big campaigns. And so it's really interesting that these influencers aren't just influencing on social media anymore, but they've actually stepped back into maybe the more old school sort of advertising for fashion retailers you know in magazines or on billboards wearing the fashion like like models would 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 typically do it's a really interesting space i'm not sure we've covered 
nearly enough of what we could cover in this space and maybe uh, it's something that we'll come back to at a, a later episode if there's a slightly different angle but i definitely think it's worth thinking about uh, especially if you're looking for anything in marketing or anything similar about how businesses are are advertising marketing nowadays um, but also kind of the challenges that are created for the tax or business world uh, with these new forms of advertising and the, the need for regulators to keep up but for now, we'll leave that story here. So the final and fun story of this month's episode is all about flexible working. I think it's been covered an awful lot. And we've got a little bit of new research that we can share with you and also chat through what we're thinking or what students are thinking, what employers are thinking when it comes to their graduates and the future of work. So at Bright Network, we do a report which 15,000 Bright Network members contribute to, filled in the survey. Thank you so much if you did uh, that, if you're listening. Um, and we ask on a load of range of things, but flexible work was definitely one of the more interesting things. And what we found was that 91% of, uh, of graduates want some form of flexible working with about four in five wanting to be at home at least one day um, of the week. So working remotely at least one day of the week. And I actually think when it comes to flexible working, um, it's a word that's banded about quite quite a lot, but it, it's interesting to, to actually decipher what it means. In my mind, it's the ability to work remote at least some of the time and also to be able to slightly shift your hours compared to the, the norm so instead of working a classic nine to five or nine to six, possibly being able to start at 7.30 and uh, leaving at 3.30 or at least having a longer lunch break to do something else around it. But Chris, is that your sense of what flexible working uh, is post-pandemic? Um, absolutely. And I think actually the pandemic has had quite an impact on making employers realise that employees can be just as productive and actually in many cases more productive through flexible working so i think it's absolutely right i think it's not necessarily being um in the office and not necessarily keeping to traditional nine, nine to five business hours um i i see flexible working as as a way of achieving work-life balance people have traditionally talked about work-life balance meaning how do you combine the, the need to work with having life outside work. And I think flexible working can, can offer you that with the proviso that there's always the risk of having to be always on, as it were, which is why I think increasingly employers are talking about core hours and then hours when you're not expected to be all, always on. Um, but I, I, I think flexible working, uh, in, in my lifetime, it occurred um, first of all, with maternity returners who wanted the ability to work from home, to, to be able to go home, look after the kids, and then, uh, you know, with the advent of things like BlackBerry and, and email and so on, be able to carry on working. And in a professional service context, that was important because clients expect you to be available, not necessarily all the time, but often they expect you to be available out of office hours. So knowing that you can be available out of office hours often gives them that reassurance they need to know that you are there when they need you to be. Also, it ties into this point, which we talk a lot about at Bright Network is trusted to deliver, that they treat people like adults, that you don't need to be 
present all the time, this idea of presenteeism. You don't need to be present all the time, but as long as you're hitting your targets and if the business is well set up to give you clear goals and clear ideas of how and what you need to be hitting when it comes to targets, ultimately, if the business is doing well and you're doing well in the business, it doesn't actually matter if you're at your desk at 8.30 every morning, if you're at your desk at 9.30, you know, ultimately the, the business cares about uh, results. And there's been lots of like literature around it about how to effectively set targets and empower uh, team members, teams to to go and achieve achieve their results rather than just say, right, you've got to be here nine to six and try and do as much work as, 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 as you possibly can. Chris, moving on slightly, um, it looks like from the work that Brian Network has done with all the employers that we work with is that most graduate schemes starting in September will have a mix. So it will be likely that it's either about 50-50 in the office um, remote or even a little bit more in the office three or four days. But very few, um, a lot of people I'm sure will be pleased to know, very few are going to be five days constantly um, in the office. But there's a clear need for the office still, Chris. And with your view, a lot of your working life, you would have spent very much full time in the office. And what do you think graduates can gain from making sure they're present in the office and uh, learning from from others around them? Just to put this in context and thinking back over my working life, I, I think this is a tremendous development. And in the old days, when you were expected to be in the office five days a week, the weekend seemed very short. Um, you seem to spend a lot of your time commuting. So I, I, I think uh, flexible working is a fantastic thing. But I would just caution that when you're starting out on your career, you're probably going to be less able to make the most of it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is you want to seem keen to your employer. And uh, Ben, as you were saying, the great thing now is employers focus less on input, you know, jackets on the back of chairs and more on output. What have, what have you got to get done by when and the quality of, of that output? That, that's really good. But there, there are very good reasons for wanting to be in the office, especially when you're starting out. Uh, I've always regarded work as partly professional, vocational, partly social. You, you meet interesting colleagues. You share experiences with them. You can't do that very easily via Zoom. You, you need to just be able to bump into them around the coffee machine. All I, all I would urge is that when you're starting out on your career, don't, don't, don't try to spend as little time in the office as possible because the office still has an important role to play especially the, the more junior you are in terms of, of your learning experience, the, the, the culture uh, that you will gain from, from being in the office. So um, I think as, as you become more senior, your outputs are more defined. It's easier to fulfill them by working flexibly. But when you're starting out, I think it's important to be able to, to spend time in the office still. Yeah, really good points there, Chris. Uh, one thing I did want to cover is that in the same survey of, of graduates, uh, 26%, uh, so one in four, said that they believed they should be able to choose their own hours. And I think what I'm seeing across the market, because I see obviously both from the employer side and the graduate side, so um, hopefully this helps, is that there's definitely the want from employers to provide more flexible working. But as Chris said, is that you want to appear keen, enthusiastic, and 
you might not be able to get that complete flexibility straight away. So it's making sure that you've got that kind of balancing act between making sure that you are present, you are learning in the office um, and you are around when your supervisors find it most helpful, but also making sure that you can sort of get that good work-life balance that is so important to so many graduates. So I think it's one of those things that, you know, there might be the dream to pick your own hours and work when you want. Um, but as I say, there's often a bit of a trade-off that you need to need to uh, work towards it to, to get that little extra added flexibility, which is unlikely to happen in the first few years of your career. One thing that could be possible in the future, though, Chris, which we're going to end this episode on, is the four-day working week. Um, 3,000 workers over 60 companies are trialing a scheme for six months um, where they're going to be working four days a week with no loss in pay. What's your thoughts on that, Chris? And is it inevitable that we're going to go to a four-day working week as a country? Well, I, I think this might be confusing two things. On the one hand, flexible working, which means you still get the work done. You still work the hours that you otherwise would have done if you were in the office all the time and actually reducing the hours that you work. Now, if the four-day week is about working for four days and having three days off as your weekend, we're just stepping back from this. What economists will tell you is that the secular trend, as they call it, is that productivity in developed economies is flatlining. We're not as productive as we used to be at a time when people thought that technology would make us more productive. Now, part of the reason for this is that it is harder to measure productivity. So it may be that things that were traditionally measured as productive uh, are being replaced by things which can't be measured quite so easily. But it seems to me that if people generally are going to be working four days rather than the traditional five days, productivity across the economy is bound to go down at a time when I'm not sure that we can afford it. So I'm not sure the four-day working week itself is what is likely to happen in the future, but I do think the idea that you only spend four days in the office in any given week is likely to happen in the future. Good stuff, Chris. I think we're going to leave it there. Hopefully that's a little bit of interesting insight, both in terms of what your fellow cohorts think in terms of flexible working, but also getting that sense and that flavour from employers as well it is something which can be sort of tricky to balance obviously if you are looking for flexibility it's definitely something that you can ask at interview but make sure that you're being keen whatever the answer make sure you're showing your keenness and showing your flexibility um, because you don't want to lose out on an opportunity because you're being too direct maybe with some of the the, the questioning but what i would say is okay to ask those sort of questions around what their policies are, how they've been set up post-pandemic. I know it's something on a lot of graduates' minds, but just be careful how you're wording those questions, I think would be my top tip for you. Chris, really great to see you again. Thank you so much for doing this episode with me. Did you enjoy this one? Did we get good stuff for thinking? We did, we did. And I'm just... uh, um... Uh, what I have in mind are your birthday celebrations, which are to come. So we need to wrap this up so that you can get off and start celebrating. So once again, happy birthday. Thank you, Chris. And that sounds like a great plan. What a fantastic episode. I'm sure that you will agree. And hopefully you've learned loads of stuff that you can go into 
your workplace interviews and everywhere else and start talking about yourselves. For more information, make sure you head to our Instagram and LinkedIn. Give us a follow, give us a subscribe on Apple and Spotify. And until next month, have a fantastic time and see you there.